All right, uh, turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11. We left off last week with Exodus chapter 10. Now I'm going to go back and highlight a few verses from last week just to bring people up to date in case you weren't able to be here last week or you're just visiting for the first time. We welcome you here today. We'd love to get to know you, tell you about our church. We're going to have uh, new members join at the end of the church, uh, this service. So uh, just be prepared. We're going to call you down at the end. And uh, I think we had 24 new members in the last new members class that have decided to join. So, and that, that doesn't count all their, their kids. They're all string. So uh, we're becoming like the Egyptian or the Hebrew people in Egypt. We're multiplying, right? So we're, we're thankful for that. And I, and I thank you all for uh, inviting these people, for them hearing word. Just about everybody in the class was invited by someone who already attends here. So we're thankful for the work that you do to bring people in to be a part of our church family. Okay? All right. So you're in your Bibles. Uh, Exodus chapter 11. We talked last week about the concept of kinsman redeemer. Now, in Appalachia, this isn't a hard concept to understand. Okay? It's because, man, when you got kinfolk, you may have to go back a few generations just to know what that means. But it means you take care of your own. All right? Uh, and so this idea of kinsman redeemer... It was the job of the brother to provide an heir for his, uh, his deceased brother if someone passed away or if he were in debt. Uh, if land was lost in the family that was family land, it was your job to get it back. If relatives ever went into slavery or were captured or kidnapped, it was your job to go free them from that slavery. Then if someone killed a member of yours, it was your job to find out who killed them and then to avenge that death. That was the system of justice in a region that largely didn't have justice or an organized governmental system by which to punish evildoers. Uh, then the kinsman redeemer, when he would go to uh, uh, his brother's wife, it's his deceased brother's wife, like this would be totally inappropriate if his brother was still alive, right? So you're going you're gonna to propose to your former sister-in-law because your brother has passed away, and this is what a proposal would look like. I've taken care of your debt. I've I've taken care of all the bills associated with your slavery. I'm going to take you to be mine if you will accept me, and I will protect you if you will allow me. I will bring you to my home, to my place. There you'll be safe, and I will provide for you and yours the rest of your days. And that's exactly what God is doing. He is uh, fulfilling a promise that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and, jo and uh, Jacob, and ultimately Joseph when he comes to redeem the people of Israel. So when God announces to Moses that I'm going to bring the people out and you're going to be the instrument through which I do that, Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then God said, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I tell them? Now to this point, I mean, you're looking at thousands of years of human history and God has never formally given his name to the world. This is a huge situation. They, they didn't have a Bible at the time, okay? There was no such thing. This, this Bible that you have, it's only been around for about 3,400 years, okay? And Moses wrote the beginning of it. So Moses is operating at a position of ignorance here. I need to know your name so I can tell about who you are. And God answers, I am who I am. I am the God who exists. I'm the God who exists in the past, present, and future. I am the, 
I'm the real God compared to all these false gods that people worship. He says, say this to the people of Israel, I am, or the God who exists, has sent me to you. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say, the Lord, Yahweh, the God who exists, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, the elders of the Hebrew people are going to believe it, but God tells him in advance because God knows the future. He knows how people are going to respond to his word in advance. And so God says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And then after that, he will let you go. God knows how he's going to respond. He knows exactly what it's going to take for Pharaoh to respond favorably to the Hebrew people. So after Moses goes to his own people and lists them, he goes and he stands before Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Okay, you've heard this before. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and says, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? I've never heard this guy's name before. I've never heard this God's name before. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, let me say this in Pharaoh's defense. Had anybody before this knew Yahweh's name? And the answer to that is what? No. And so Pharaoh almost mockingly, but at the same time, like, I, I know a bunch of gods and I know their names, but the God you just mentioned I've never heard of before. Why should I obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know your God. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Later we see when, when Moses is bringing the plagues, he says, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. You've already told him once. You can tell him twice. He's not going to respond. But this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. But watch God's heart here. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. See, God just didn't want the Hebrew people to know that he was the God, the ruler of the entire earth. He wanted everyone in Egypt to understand this. See, God knew that, and in his heart, the most important thing in the universe is to direct your worship to him and not toward anybody or anything else. There's a lot of things that we direct our hearts toward. And in the ancient world, and even today in many parts of of Asia and even in our hemisphere, people set up gods to demonstrate or to worship, set up gods to represent what they worship in this life. Okay, Isis, for example, the goddess of fertility, and uh, then you had Ra, the the king of the sun, the god of the sun, and Horus, the the god who supposedly died and came back to life, and Osiris, the the goddess of the the Nile. You you have all of these, Tauret, the the goddess of childbirth. You had all these gods, so whatever it is that you valued, you prayed to that god. And I, I want you to get this concept because it's not that different today than it was back then, even in America, except we believe in one God. But if you think about it, now this is where I'm starting to get into the meat today, 
if you think about it, usually when we pray, now listen, is it an act of worship or we want something from Jehovah God? Which is it? We all know it. Usually when we pray, and we all know when we pray the hardest, it's not telling God how great he is. If any of you are in marriage, you, you know how this works. You've had this conversation, the wife most often probably to the husband. Why is it that you only pay attention to me when you what? How did y'all know to fill in those blanks with the exact two words? Did I rehearse that with anyone before I came in this room? But yet all the women knew what to say. When I, Why do you only pay attention to me when you want something? You, we've all said it before in some way. And this, I think a lot of times is how God feels. Why do you only pay attention to me when you want something? Why is it that you're only in conversation with me when you want something? God wants to be loved. God wants to be adored. It's not like he's this needy being that goes around, oh, I wish they loved me. It's just this is who he designed us to be, to be in a love relationship with him, that we think about him through the day and his greatness, and we, we, we want to tell him just how much we love him and appreciate who he is. But all too often, we go to God only when we want something. And that's what the polytheistic religious system is all about. It's not that they loved any of these gods. It's just that these gods represented what were the idols of their heart. Whatever it was they truly worshipped, they prayed to these gods to give them what they worshipped. You follow that? And so the only way that we're different is we have one instead of a bunch. Many times we can fall into the same sin. And so what God does, we talked about last week, is he attacks the God of the frogs. And there's frogs everywhere. So eventually people start cursing those frogs. People start cursing the Nile. People start cursing the God of the protector of cattle, the God of the flies. They curse all these gods. And God is showing them, you can pray to these false gods all you want. They're not going to give you what you want. I'm in control of all these things, not these gods you talk to. And you can't control me like you think you can control them. And so one after another after another, finally to where God has destroyed everything and the only hope they have is next year maybe the crops will come back. But then God attacks their most prominent, their most powerful God that they fear the most. And they would go out every morning. They would do prayers to the Nile River. We talked about that last week. And they would also say this prayer to Ra, the king of the sun. Pharaoh would go out with his priests of Ra every morning, and they would say, Hail to thee, beautiful Ra, as they would see the sun rising. Ra of every day, who rises at dawn without ceasing, hail to thee. Praise you. We praise the sun. We need the sun. Thank you, God Ra, for providing this sun for us. But there was no prayer for three days because God brought the plague of darkness upon the whole earth. And you can just see, we, we, you know the song, Annie, the sun will come up tomorrow, right? That wasn't true for three days in Egypt. It's not coming out. The worshipers go out there and it's not coming and they see that 
The God of the Hebrews is actually the one in control of all things. So almost everyone in Egypt at this point is saying, okay, that's it, uncle. He's defeated our most powerful God. We need to let them go. But Pharaoh will not during this darkness that covered the land. Now there's one God left that God's going to attack. Our God is going to attack. And that's this God. Here's an ancient sculpture. Here's an ancient picture. This is the dwarf God, Bess. Now, he's not known as the most powerful God, but in Egypt, he was the most loved God. In Egypt, this is the God that they prayed to the most. If you were to take a poll, which God do you fear? Which God is the most powerful? They say Ra, God of the sun. But if they say, which God do you pray to the most? It would be the God Bess. Bess was the God who protected children. You, they prayed and they loved. The most popular God was Bess. Everybody worshiped Bess because deep down all the Egyptians wanted their child to be protected, their children to be protected. And so as they would go to pray to Bess every day, the one who protected their kids. God has wiped out all other gods, but they're still praying every day, dear God, Bess. All the crops are gone, all the light's gone, the water's gone, our cattle are gone, but thank you, God, Bess, because to this point, none of us have lost our children. And so thank you, you are the one God who is protecting us. So what God has done is systematically removed all gods, but here we have Pharaoh who will not let the Hebrew people go. And so God's going to do what sometimes God has to do, church family. God is going to hit the nation of Israel where it hits, hurts the most. He's gonna wipe out the God that they value the most that they pray to the most. All the material gods are gone. Their own personal health with the boils has been attacked. But he's going after the God of the firstborn. Now for Pharaoh, this is why this is the biggest God of all. It's because if you remember what the problem was, I want you to think back 80 years from this point right here. Do you remember what the problem was when Pharaoh ordered for all the babies to be killed, the Hebrews' babies to be killed, yet his daughter decided to take in one of the Hebrew babies, Moses. Why did she bring them in? Why did she bring Moses in? Because her father didn't have a male heir, and she didn't have a male heir. And so in or, when her father would pass away, if there were no male heir that had been appointed ruler of Egypt, there would be this internal squabble going on, and then a man would rise to the throne from among the aristocratic families, and then when he came to the throne, he would systematically, the new king, would wipe out all the family of the king that didn't have an heir, just in case one day one of them would have a child and try to assert the throne from the family who was presently in power. And so it's critically important, even more so than what we understand today. Can you imagine the pressure on you and your family 
as the king with every child that was born and none of them would be men? That if you don't have a boy, it doesn't mean you just don't have a son. It means your entire family is going to be wiped out if you don't have a boy. And if you have girls, can you imagine the pressure on your daughter? Honey, no pressure or anything. But this was before they knew that men decided the gender of the baby, right? Uh, can you imagine the pressure on a daughter? Honey, if you don't give us a male child, we're all going to be killed. Now, I don't want you to feel any pressure or anything, but this is death and life to us. So Pharaoh, when he's looking at his firstborn son, he's seeing this is the one who will keep our family alive, who will keep the power with us. Now, I say that to say, are we any different than Pharaoh? If nothing else, listen, take this to heart. If nothing else gets our attention, could God get our attention if he afflicted one of our children? The idols of our heart. I mean, I, I just wrote down some thoughts in my own life. This is just for my own personal devotion in the last few weeks. This is what I wrote. God, am I so different? Are my top idols my children? Do I focus more on them and their accomplishments than I do on worshiping you? This, these are just my thoughts to God. God, do, do I live among the people, even church members, who will readily skip worship services to go worship, I mean, not worship, to watch our children participate in activities on your day? Do I, as a leader of a church, as a parent myself, do I make family decisions not based on what will bring the most glory to you? Do my children make decisions not based on what brings the most glory to you, but ultimately what we think is best for us and our family? Do I ever somehow think that Jesus wants me, Jesus wants me to prioritize my children's success over worshiping him? Because that's how idols work, God. They take my attention away from the one true God. I even thought about my own self. Is How can you excuse breaking your word at work or completely uprooting your family to do something else? How do you excuse that? We see it in... Politics, we see it in professional sports all the time. Someone leaves, even though they said, well, I'll be here for the next five years. They leave and go somewhere else. And the excuse they give is, and people accept this idolatrous statement, which is, well, he had to do what was best, fill in the blank, for his family. You all know that one too. He had to do what was best for his family. As if the ultimate goal in life is to do what is best for you and yours. Are you following me, church? 
deep down, this is the mistake that I think we make, is we are not much different than the best worshipers. Because I'm, I'm going to challenge most of the parents in here. If you were honest, I'm not going to have you raise your hands. But if you would me measure out what you're praying about, it would either be money so you can have money for your children or you're praying for things for your children. Good or bad, you are praying for your kids. That's where most of your attention goes. Or your kids' kids. And I just wonder... If God would say to us, why do you only pay attention to me when you want something? See, I want you to understand the idolatry system of the Egyptians so we can see how we do it ourselves. Deep down we say, or on the surface we say, I worship God, Jehovah, the creator of the universe. But if we really peel away the onion layers of our heart and we get to the core of it, the reason I come to church, the reason I pray to God, the reason I do the right thing, the reason I work so hard is ultimately not for his glory, but for the good of my kids. Because I want my kids to be happy, because I want them to be successful. And we all... We just fight it at times. Deep down, what we're thinking is, I'm fulfilled through their success. Does anybody relate or am I just the only one that does this? Listen, my friends. What God is communicating here and to us here today, I will not be used by you. You are not going to prostitute me out for the sake of your kids' welfare. It's not how this relationship works. So I ask you, do we put our life's energy into using God to make our kids happy? Or do we use our life's energy into developing our children who will make God happy? That tells you who your God is. So God's going to get after it here in Exodus chapter 10. Pharaoh says to Moses after the plague of darkness, he says, get away from me. You take care. Now you watch it, buddy. Never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. But Moses' parting words as God reveals this to him probably before but maybe in the moment as he's walking out the door, I want you to hear what he says to Pharaoh. Last convo here. Yet one more plague, this is what the Lord says, one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh in Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now. In the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Now, now do you remember just a few months for this, how did everybody in Egypt 
filled toward Moses. The Hebrew people didn't believe in him. They were mad at him. Why did you cause all this trouble on us? Now we got to make bricks without straw. Now they all love him. When he came to the Egyptians people, they laughed him out of town. Here's the loser we ran out 40 years ago. Here's the guy who could have been the king, but he decided to join with the Hebrew people. Well, look what that's got you. But now what God has done, this is what I want you to see. Listen, when you forget this concept of trying to make your name great, that's when God makes your name great. I want to say that again because I, I don't want you to forget it. When you drop the idea of trying to make your name great, that's when God goes to work to make your name great. If you make up your mind, my job is to make great the name of the Lord, then God will use you to give you a good name. When you communicate to your children and your children make it the goal of their life to make God's name great, that's when you get a great name for your children and a great name for yourself as a parent. It can't be the other way around. So Moses says, thus said the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Now this means about a third of the population at that time would have been a firstborn. Just an example in here. How many of you are the firstborn in your family? Raise your hand if you're the firstborn. Okay, now we have smaller families today, so that's probably 40% of our population in this room. Every first, just imagine if every person you just saw raise their hand died in one night. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn even of the animals. There shall be a great cry throughout the all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog will growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, I want you to see again what God's doing here. He is doing this. Watch, watch, watch this. Is he doing the plague of the firstborn for the sake of the people of Israel? The answer to that is what? No. Why is he doing it? Who is Moses speaking to here? When he says, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. Who is the you that he want, God wants to know that he makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel? Who's the you? Who's he speaking to when he says this is going to happen? To Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Listen what he's saying. He's saying to all the people he used to be a part of. He's saying to people he used to hang out with. He's saying to the people one of what he used to be before he came to know Yahweh. He's saying to them, listen, God will do some awful things in your life if that's what he's got to do to get your attention so that you will worship and receive and understand that he is the all-powerful God in the universe. This death of the firstborn, listen, my friends, is an evangelistic technique. 
to praise God throughout Egypt. Not just so the people will be let go, but so that the Egyptians will know that all these other gods are false gods. And I want you to think for a moment. This is who they are. This is their faith. Don't miss this. This sounds like a terrible thing that God is about to do to kill all their first. People would think, man, what a cruel God that is. But listen, my friends, anyhow in any way, God rips idols out of your hands so that you can learn and so that you won't spend eternity in hell, whatever amount of cruelty he's got to do to you in this life so that you get that to avoid an eternity in hell, that is the most merciful thing he can do for you. Don't think this is a cruel God. He's done everything he knows how to do to get Pharaoh's attention, but yet Pharaoh rejects it. And listen, how many of you know God is in the business of getting people's attention so they can figure out in this life, not in the next, that he is the one true God and the only God to be worshipped. This is not an act of cruelty. It is an act of mercy. And theologically from other passages of scriptures, listen to this. What do we know happens to children when they pass away before they are able to know the difference between sin, evil, and good. What happens? They go where? They go to heaven. Which is the more merciful God that allows them to be raised up in a system that completely ignores him and ends up in eternity to hell or to remove them from a situation so that they can spend eternity in heaven? Which is the more merciful God? So God is answering some questions for them now. Who are the real gods? And he says, all these, says the Pharaoh, and all these your servants will come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, Moses says, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. I want, I want you to see this. I'm going to leave, but we're not leaving here until what? You bow down and recognize that our God is God. Pharaoh could have said right at that moment, you know what? I changed my mind. You can go. Moses said, that's not going to be good enough. Until you recognize that our God is the God of all of your gods, we're not going anywhere. And Pharaoh doesn't do it. So Moses leaves the room and he goes to the Hebrew people. Now, this is at the deep part of why we do what we do today. Pay attention to this. This is what we're about to do right now. This story that's about to come next is the heart of our faith. It is the origin of something we do in church every month or even more regularly than that. Moses tells the people, you need to find a lamb without blemish, the best little lamb you have, a male, a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And then they shall take some of the blood after they kill that little lamb, and they will put it on the doorposts. Just imagine that. He's putting it on the doorposts of the house. Put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house 
in which they eat of it. They shall eat the flesh that night. You're going to have lamb for dinner tonight, and you're going to put the blood of the lamb over the door sill of your house. And you're going to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. With bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So this is, this is what he does. He's saying this is how we're going to set it up. You're going to have bread, and it's unleavened. What unleavened means, it's not having any yeast. You've got to cook this tonight. You don't have time to sit around for an hour, hour and a half for the bread to rise. You need to go in your homes and bake this bread right now without any yeast in it. Don't have time for that. And then what you're going to do is, while your wife's preparing that, you go get a lamb and you put blood over your door sills. Because God is going to do something this night. God has said, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. Again, why is he doing this? So the Egyptians will also know that he is the real God. I am the Lord, not their false gods. He says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, when I see the blood of the lamb, I'm going to pass over your house and I'm not going to kill your firstborn. I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days from this point on, you shall eat unleavened bread. And in the first day, you shall remove the leaven out of your house. What is that? The leaven is the yeast. Get it all out of the house. That's symbolic of sin. Get all the sin out of your house to focus on preparing to come to the table of the Lord. You confess all your sin. And you believe in what the cup represents. This has become our communion. The, the bread is the body of Christ Jesus refers to later. This is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. God is instituting it 1,446 years before Jesus comes. Jesus is the blood of the lamb that goes. This is so crucial to our understanding of the faith is God is giving them this metaphor for what Christ is going to do for them in their lives. Get all the sin out of your house. Eat unleavened bread. Put the blood of the lamb. That's what the cup represents, is the blood of Christ that was shed for you. This is what we're going to celebrate next week. Now, I've got to pause here. The reason I'm talking about this today, I thought about putting it off the next week, but I'm doing it today because of this verse right here. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. What that means is, I've never really explained this before. I've been here 20 years. I've never gone to this verse and said why this verse is so important to our faith. So I'm going to do a little time out here before I get the rest of it because I want you to get this. Okay? What this is saying is, before you, this is how it applies to us today as Christians. You know communion's coming next week in seven days. Y'all follow? So make sure in that seven days, I mean, we should do this all the time, but absolutely whatever you do, for the next seven days, knowing that communion is coming, where we're going to celebrate the Passover, where God passes over our sins, do everything that's in your power to get any sin or disunity out of your life over the next seven days so that when you do come to the table, the leaven is out of your spiritual house.
Do you get that, church family? So what I'm thinking during this week is, is I'm, am I at odds with any of my church family? Have I sinned against God or anyone else? And the way that we get the sin out of the house is we confess to God, I realize I'm a sinner, and if there's any way to make it right with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to do so between now and next Sunday morning when we take communion together. You, you follow that church family? And sometimes I wonder, which to be honest with you, most Christians around the world do it this way. We just don't. I haven't been able to figure out the Baptist tradition, why we don't, but most Christian groups around the world do this. Is they're on a perpetual seven-day cycle. What do I mean by that? Is that every week they do communion. So that Every week I'm thinking I need to get the sin out of the house, not just the last week of the year. I mean, if you think about it, the way we celebrate communion, if you really think about the deepest meaning of it, I want you to think about this. If you really think about it, what it's saying is I'm not going to worry that much about sin for the first three weeks, but by golly, that last seven days, I'm going to get it straight because communion's coming. But if we did it every week, then y'all be on the hook all the time. Y'all see what I'm saying? Some of you right now, can we go to communion once a quarter again? I got this sister-in-law I just don't like to reconcile with. And if I only have to do it four times a year, I can live with it. 52 weeks out of the year, you're asking a little much, Pastor Steve. Get it out of the house. Now, watch this verse. They never had a Bible. They didn't know the Word of God. <clears throat> then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Now we read that coming out of our tradition, your entire life if you've been raised in church doing communion and understanding Passover story, we don't think much about this verse. Listen, I just want you to put yourself in that day. This is some crazy stuff. This is like, if I would have, I got to be honest, if I lived back then, even if I would have seen all the plagues, if some guy would have come to me and I didn't have any historical records of the work of God. And he says, okay, you've seen all these other plagues. Yeah, man, that's pretty impressive. But what God's going to do is he's just going to wipe out selectively the firstborn of every family over across the river in South Point. And that plague that's coming through, it's not going to kill the kids in Canova. You just have to do one thing. I'm like, first of all, I'm going to say, how is a plague going to hit over in South Point and not cross the river? That doesn't make sense to me. Okay, what is it I got to do? Do I have to give them inoculation? Do I take a pill? Do we drink a, some kind of drink or something like that? Nope, here's what you need to do. Go kill one of your animals and put the blood on your, your door of your house. I would have said, dude, you are nuts. Why would I ever do such a stupid thing? What is killing an animal going to do to protect my kid from being killed? Even if I believe that everybody's kid is going to be killed that night, everybody's firstborn child, how is that going to work? Am I really going to buy into the fact that killing an animal and putting blood on my house is going to, man, my wife's going to be complaining about the stain, the stink, it's going to draw flies. And yet, man, this is the blessing of God. The people went and did so. Look at the faith that the people of Egypt, they are leaving their slave mentality, at least for the moment, and saying, you know what? This is what we're going to do. We're going to trust God. For the sake of our children and for our future, we're going to trust God. 
Man, that, that's, a, that's a powerful statement of faith what they're doing here. So the next day, when we talk about the lamb that covers, I want you to see to John chapter 1, how John the Baptist communicates this to New Testament believers. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I want, I want you to understand, I, I got to pull it back a little bit because I want you to get what I'm about to say next. Okay? If you, listen, if you, at the time of Moses, had never heard that animal sacrifice covers sins, that it'll differentiate between you and the pagans that live over in South Point, right? If you had never heard that before and someone said to you, that would have hit your ears like, man, that's some crazy stuff. And I want you to understand, when you share the gospel with people who don't know the origins of our faith, and you say that one man who lived 2,000 years ago, a peasant, lived in the, in the Middle East desert, and he came out and he was crucified on the cross, and somehow his blood that was shed covers all your sins so that if you place your faith in him, you will go to heaven, heaven forever. I just want you to understand, a Muslim hears that, a Buddhist hears that, even a Jew hears that today, and they say what? Man, that's some crazy stuff. It has to be accepted by faith. Most of you believe it because you've been raised in a tradition of people that believe it. This is some crazy stuff that one man can die and we don't have to do every, watch, every other religion in the world that believes there's an afterlife teaches this. If you're more good than bad, you get a better next afterlife. You see that? Christianity is not like any of those. This is some crazy stuff. One person can die for the sins of the whole world. All you have to do is look to that cross and you'll be forgiven of your sins. And that's all your children have to do. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do something to keep it. It's a gift from God by grace. It's yours. It's the free gift. You just have to believe that he takes away your sin. Do you believe that today? All this stuff we're talking about, about God blessing, God curses. Do you believe that there's one God in heaven who deserves all worship, who loved you so much? that he sent his only begotten son to die for you on the cross and the blood of the lamb will cause the judge of the universe to pass over you at the end times so that those who aren't covered by the blood of the lamb will be judged and sent to hell. But those who are covered by the blood of the lamb will not be judged and allowed to go into heaven with God for all eternity. Do you believe that today? Well, listen, if you do, that's some crazy stuff. where you've got to take it by faith. Man, there's so more, much more I want to say about that. You've got to come tonight. I hope you come tonight, okay? i got to keep going. Now we get into history. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh sat on his throne to the captive in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone wasn't dead. Not long ago, I, I went by a funeral home. This isn't a picture of it, but the funeral home, it looked like this. Now, typically, when you see a funeral lined up like this, all the way around the block, is that somebody 90 years old has passed away. Typically, when you see something like this, 
Who's passed away? It's a kid or a teenager. That's when you see the most grief. That's when you see almost panic. Entire community shut down when one of our teenagers loses their life. Everybody makes those visitations, pays your respects, breaks people's hearts. This happened for every home in Egypt. Can you imagine the grief? This is the most important thing that I'm going to share with you today. Second most. Thing about the lamb was the most important. They just lost a third of their population. The pain is unbearable. And we ask the question, I mean, if you're human and you have a heart and you hear this story, you're going to ask the question, how could a loving God do such a thing to all those kids, even the adults, wipe out an entire nation? How could a loving God do that? And I got a verse for you, and I want you to watch because it's really important. Paul writes to the Galatians that the same theme is true in the Old Testament as well. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. This is true of individuals. This is true of nations. Don't miss what I'm about to say next. The Egyptians built their kingdom on the backs of 400 years of slavery. And at the time of Moses, it had been 80 more years since abortion was legalized in Egypt. And as a result, over a million Egyptians killed. If you just take the population of Egypt at the time, take about 30 to 40%, it gives you well over a million firstborn, a million Egyptians killed. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. You build your nation, on the backs of slaves, this is what happens. I've got this picture here from the Battle of Gettysburg. From 1781, when we officially constituted as the United States, took our president to 1861, we had had 80 years of slavery here in the United States. And if you take the 1,086,979 killed or wounded in the Civil War, and you'd add up all our other wars from the Revolutionary War until what's going over in the Middle East right now, if you add up the results of all the killing, all the deaths of the soldiers, of all those other wars combined, they still do not equal how many men and women we lost in the Civil War. Because that's how evil slavery is. Be not deceived, God is saying during the time of Abraham Lincoln. God will not be mocked. What you sow, you will reap. And here's my fear for our country today. 
1973, Roe v. Wade made abortion legal in this nation. What's going to happen in 80 years from that date? In less than 30, listen, for the people of the United States, in West Virginia where you're driving around everywhere and it says abortion is still legal in West Virginia, listen, state, listen, United States, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you're going to reap. And you wipe out those million babies, and you're going to come back and think God's going to do nothing about that? We think we're getting away with it? Let me tell you what, God's keeping a tally. And if this nation doesn't repent and repent soon, there is going to come a hell upon this nation like we have never seen before. What we sow, we will reap. So Pharaoh gets it. He summons Moses and Aaron by night. Said, I'm never going to see you again. Well, he's changed his mind. Now he knows who God is. Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, serve Yahweh, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. But watch what he closes with. And bless me also. I've recognized that your God is God. Man, next week we're going to see that Pharaoh wasn't completely genuine when he did this. But I want to close with these three thoughts quickly. Number one, as you leave here today, be thinking about these questions. Are your children gifts you are giving back to God, or are they idols from which you draw your worth? Are your children gifts you are giving back to God or are they idols from which you draw your worth? Number two, like lamb's blood on doorposts, when God's word says to do something, do you obey even, even when you or even when it doesn't make sense to you? And then number three, will you willingly lay down your idols or must God pry them from your hands? What idols may be distracting you from putting God first?